There we go. Okay. So, uh, thing to do today is I'm looking for your solar observations. Um, I know the weather has not been great this last week. It wasn't bad. The first was pretty good. The first week, first week or so of class. Um, so if you have one, that's great. Make sure I get a copy of your data sheet. Don't give me your original. So make a copy of it, photograph it, whatever you want to do, and submit it up on D2L. If you made a copy and you want to hand me one, that's perfectly fine as well. Just don't give me your original so that I have a copy to look at. I'll then check them and give any comments. Um, technically, after today, it's late. What I'm going to do is give you one more week. I'm going to mark it late, but I'm only going to do the 10% late. So you, you can still get four and a half out of five points for doing it. You have a whole other week to worry, to worry about it. So technically it will be late since we've had, at least have had some nice weather, and I know people have been able to get some. But I'm not going to do the 10, 25, and 50% normally. If you don't get it till this weekend, you'd lose half credit on it. I'm only going to take off 10%. So you still have a whole other week to do it. and. That way you can still get the vast majority of the credit. And the first one I pretty much will give you full credit for it. So you're still going to get a 90% on it. So if you haven't gotten one, don't stress over it. It's only a couple points. And uh, try to get something this week. As of, as of earlier this morning, it was talking only partly cloudy this weekend and not cloudy and rainy the whole time. So it looks like there's a chance that by the time we get into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you'll have a chance to get, to get another one. So. That's why I'll, I'll do that. That way people are not getting completely penalized on anything. If you've got it, I would like to see them as soon as you've got them. So don't wait another week if you've already got one so I can at least give you some feedback on those. Um, so that's technically due today, but I'm not going to, I'm going to take it off there. There won't be any other reminders on it, but you do have this next week to turn it in if you want to still get uh, the vast majority of the credit for it. Homework one due next week. Uh, we'll finish up the chapters for that probably today. If we don't quite finish chapter four today, which is the last one for the homework, we'll finish it on Thursday before lab. Um, so again, I think I told you at the beginning, if you wait until the night before, it's a lot of work. You, you, it, it, because it's 15 questions, it's covering this whole first unit. So hopefully, since I give it to you early, you want to look at it, be, you want to look at it a little bit earlier. Right now, we've done the first 10 questions we've pretty much covered. We'll do the last five. I'll have most of the last five covered today, if not all of them. So look at them. Look at a few of them. I mean, even if you want to skip certain ones, oh, I don't like to look at that one. That one has a calculation involved. Let me jump and do some others. Have some of them written up so that you're ready to go, so that you don't come to Monday night and you're stressing yourself trying to do all 15 of the questions. It's not an assignment that is meant to do in one night, unless you're going to be spending all night up on it, you know, you're welcome to, but that's the homeworks are have been redone. I've redid them over the summer and tried them in a summer course and they work, but they're not just a few questions that you can throw together the night before. So hopefully you've already looked at some of those questions. You should be chapter one, two, and three were pretty much done with. You should be able to answer those. Yes? Um, can you get all the answers of the D2L for the homework? Um, answers will be either on that, on the slides, on the between that, the textbook and stuff that I've given you, or material based on that. I mean, you're not necessarily going to find the exact answer. You might have to interpret something from it. So it might ask you to, you know, consider what would happen based on your knowledge of things. But they're all based on the all the all the homeworks do come right come from the textbook and the slides come from the textbook. So 
they're all based together. So you should be able to find most of it there. That's another reason to take a look at them early if you're having trouble with something. You know, let me know. At the beginning. I'll be happy to go over something or say, okay, let me look at that and I'll go over it you know, the next day. Of course, if you come to me next Tuesday, then it's, we're pushing it. So, yeah? You want um, it would be preferred. I'm not requiring it. So if you write, if, unless you write like me. So if you write like me, please type just so that it makes it a lot easier for me to read them. It saves me a lot of time going through them. If you have nice, neat handwriting, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with your hand with your handwriting them. Um, so that's either either way is perfectly fine. If you type up part of it, if you have to do a calculation and you want to write the calculation by hand and just stick a photo, I've had people do that. You know, oh, I had to, this was easier to write out than to try to figure out how to get word or whatever to get the equations in it. You know, I've had people write them out, take a picture of it, and drag that right into your word document. That's great. So makes it makes it a lot easier for me to follow if I'm not you know having to jump around if everything's right in order so I can go through those because I want to get through those quickly and have them have them back. I will have an answer key available for you uh, so you can actually look at it after they're due. The only thing that means is you can't turn the homework in late. So once the homework is due, which is Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., which is due on Tuesday, after that, I'll release an answer key for you that you can get. You can study. I want you to be able to study the answers to the test the next day. But that means you can't submit the homework late. Because once I give you the answers, I'm not going to say you can submit the homework late once you've had access to the answers. So I wanted to give you a warning on that, that once it is due, I'll release the answer key so you can at least study because there's no way I'll have them grade. Even if I grade them right away and get them back to you on Thursday, you're still not having them to study. So I want you to be able to review the answers. Those will be available for you. But that's one of the things you will not be able to submit late. Uh, the review quizzes, those are up as well. Um, I think all of them might be available now, or number four might not yet be available. I'll have to double check. But the first ones, which is chapter one, and then chapters two and three are up there. Um, you can take those anytime you want, and as many times as you want, up until 8.30, up until the time of the exam, essentially. So if you want to use them to review, that's great. They're the same multiple choice test banks that we made that I'm using for the exam. So you'll see the same types of questions. You'll see some of the, you might see some of the exact same questions. So they're a good way to review that information. Uh, they are worth extra credit, so do them. It will take your last grade that you got, and it will give you a tenth of a point per question you got right. Doesn't sound like much, but if you take all three quizzes and you get a you get seven out of ten on each one, that's two extra points. So it's nothing that can hurt you. No matter how many times you take them, they cannot hurt you. They're only extra credit. So even if you get a one on them, it's a tenth of a point. It can't. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be a little bit of extra credit there. So if you really want to push yourself, you can push yourself until you get a perfect score on them and then take the full point. But I'm making them worth a little enough that I'm hoping that people are not going to stress taking them a hundred times, which you can, to get that extra few tenths of an extra tenth of a point. And then the exam is a week from Thursday. Uh, this Thursday, I'll give you a little bit more information about exactly how I'll break, how I'll break that up and how the exam will, will look. Uh, it'll essentially be two sections, a multiple choice section, which is similar to the quizzes, and an essay section, which is similar to the homework problems. So essay, again, not formal English essays, but essays as in um, some, some of the homework problems excluding the calculation ones. So the calculation ones, yes, you'll see on the homework. No, you will not see on the exam. 
That does not mean there won't be anything on the exam that asks you, doesn't ask you to multiply a couple of numbers or divide a couple of you know, basic numbers. You know, if I asked you to divide 40 by 8, I expect that you can do that, or multiply 5 times 10. I, certain things I would expect that you can do, but the numbers with scientific notation, the big numbers, you know, cubing a gigantic number, I'm not going to ask you to do that on the exam, as in some of the things that we've done on the labs or on the homeworks that you might have to do. So you, I'm not, I don't want to say no math because you won't have to add something or subtract something or divide something basic, but that would be the extent of it. Nothing you'd need a calculator for. Yeah? Sure. How many questions? Let me, let me make sure I have it all set and I'll tell you Thursday. I'm, it's going to be about a, it's going to be time to be about an hour exam. So I'm expecting that people will finish it in the first half of classes and we'll do a lab after. So. It's typically been in the, and I don't, I'm not going to give you a guarantee right now, but in the 30-some question range, it's usually about 10. I think it was about 10 from each section and then a few essays, and then a few uh, essays. So 30-ish questions, about 30 multiple choice, and then several essays. But again, I'll go through the details of it on Thursday for you. Other questions? The other good thing is don't forget to drop an exam. So, you know, the first one doesn't mean don't, don't try to do well on the first one, but it means if you completely bomb it, it goes away at the end of the semester. No questions, no questions. No questions. All right. Well, uh, picture of the day then for today. Uh, this is the Milky Way over the troll's tongue. So you can see the troll's tongue sticking out there, the big rock formation here. Uh, known as the Troll's Tongue. This is actually taken in Norway. Um, and a lot of this was carved out by glaciers uh, 10,000 years ago as the glaciers came down through Norway, carved out the weaker rock, the rock that was not as dense or easy material to, to grind away, was taken away by the glaciers. And then what was left behind were some of the features that we see here. We see this all over. We see some of this out in, you know, in the US, Western US gets a lot of this as well, where various features like this are built up. If you look closely, you can actually see the photographer in the image. Um, had to have someone else actually click the shutter for him, but the photographer is actually lying there on the tip of the tongue, uh, of the troll's tongue. So had it all set up, got it ready, had a, a friend there to take the, to actually take the image as he went around here and had to walk around to get, actually get to the tip of the uh, tongue there. Um, it's also one of those images that is two images put together. So it's difficult to get an image that would actually show the stars that you can see up here and to actually show the Earth as well. So in this case it's a shorter image of the Earth just to bring out the detail there and then a much longer image of the sky to be able to see the Milky Way galaxy, and then you stitch those two images together digitally. So fake image, you can think of it in some ways, but not really. It's just a way to be able to show things that are vastly different. The Earth, even at night, is going to be a lot brighter here than the sky. You're going to need a much deeper exposure to be able to see any kind of detail in the sky. And there in the sky, we do see our Milky Way stretching, in this case, almost straight up and down. That is our galaxy as we see it from within. So we'll be talking about galaxies in another 
uh, let's see, galaxies, I'll probably get to another month and a half or so, we'll start talking about galaxies. This is what a spiral galaxy looks like if you look at it from the edge. You don't see the big, pretty spiral arms that we might have, I think we looked at pictures the very first, uh, first day. Uh, we'll come back and look at some more. But you do see a lot of star clouds, so brighter areas where there's lots of clouds. You see some darker areas which are actually dust clouds. So when we see those dark areas, it doesn't mean there's nothing there. It means there's actually extra material there and it blocks out the light from behind it. So there's lots of stars right in this area. We just can't see them because we can't see through the dust. Up here, lots of dust. We can't see the stars that are there. So if we could eliminate the dust, this would be one of the brightest regions of the sky. And the center of our galaxy would probably be the brightest thing, well, other than like the sun or the moon, would be one of the brightest objects in the sky. But because there's so much dust between us and the galaxy, because of those immense distances, we really can't see anything there. The other stars that we see are all stars in our galaxy as well. They're just the nearby ones. These are the closer stars, they're kind of scattered all around us, but our galaxy is flattened so when we look off at very, very far distances, we're talking tens of thousands of light years, then most of the stars are condensed down to that lane, to that thing that we call the Milky Way. Question. Alrighty, well. Let's go ahead and move on. We were almost done with chapter three last time, as I recall. In fact, I was right here because I did this so you had it for your lab. Because um, I had mentioned some of the terminology. There we go. So I'm just going to review this again as we kind of get in. We're going to finish talking about orbits a little bit, and then we're going to move on uh, to chapter four. So Orbits, some of the definitions that I gave you, I defined various terms, which were perihelion is the closest approach when something is its closest to the sun. Now this all comes from Kepler. Remember, if the orbits are circular, there is no perihelion, there is no aphelion, because you're always the same distance. If you're in a circular orbit, you're always exactly the same distance away from the sun. None of the planets are in a perfectly circular orbit. Some are really close. Some are, further, some are much further away. But when we have this, when we have the perihelion or the aphelion, it just means when we're closest to the sun here. So this would be perihelion, this would be aphelion. So in January, the Earth is at perihelion, it's at its closest to the sun. We'll look at seasons in a little bit in the next chapter. But we're actually closest to the sun in January and furthest away in July telling us, jumping ahead, that the distance for between the Earth and the Sun has nothing to do with the seasons. When we talk about the Earth, if we were talking about the Earth at the center and a satellite orbiting the Earth, it would have perigee and apogee. So the helion portion of aphelion means helios or Sun. So aphelion is the closest approach to the Sun. Apogee means the same thing when applied to the Earth. And there are various terms for each of the, for any of the other planets. If you were going close to Jupiter, it would be perijove. So there are various terminologies, but the peri, peri and ap are telling you whether it's closest or furthest. So this is kind of where we finished up last time, uh, just because I know I used that terminology that we talked about in the lab, so I wanted to make sure we had fully reviewed that. So what we want to start off with here is some
some of the information about orbits. So now we've got orbits being determined by Newton's universal law of gravitation and his laws of motion. That tells us how the planets orbit. This gives extremely accurate positions for the planets. Much better than Ptolemy gave, much better than Copernicus gave, much better than Kepler gave. So we now actually have a law that explains them and we can make extremely accurate positions. So we can find, we can predict extremely accurately where is Mars going to be in 2048. Well, give me a date in 2048. We can do a calculation and we can find out exactly where Mars will be in the sky. And I can guarantee you that if you wait all that time and come back in 2048 and find out where Mars is, it'll be exactly there. So I mean, that's how precise it is now. So sometimes we call if you're calling it a law now instead of just like a theory. It's really extremely accurate. We can predict it very, very accurately where something is going to be. We can predict the position of the moon well in advance when we talk about eclipses later today. We can predict an eclipse decades, centuries in advance. I can tell you exactly where the sun and the moon are going to be and when they're going to intersect. So I can tell you that on April 8th of 2024 there's going to be an eclipse. It's not that it's going to be around that or close to that or it might be a little bit off. It's going to be, you can tell the exact time it's going to start and when it's going to end and where it's going to be visible. And that all comes down to Newton's laws. Newton gives us the ability to be able to calculate those extremely accurately. And what we find when we look at this, when we look at the orbits, we do find that the closer planets move faster. That was Kepler's third law. Right? A cubed equals P squared. So the distance was related to the period. It wasn't just an easy relationship, but there was a relationship between how close something was to the sun and how fast it moves. So Mercury moves the fastest. Neptune, the furthest planet, moves the slowest. The eccentricity, remember eccentricity is how squashed the circle was, are really very small. Small eccentricity means the orbits are really close to being circled. Which is why, you know, why did it take until the time of Kepler for us to get rid of circles? We've been using circles for thousands of years. It's because everything is so close to being a circle. So those orbital eccentricities are all very small. We do find some other interesting things that all the planets orbit in the same direction and in the same plane. So our galaxy was flat. We saw the picture today, but you know. Back in grade school or whatever, you drew an orbit, you drew a, drew a sample solar system, you put the sun there, you drew a bunch of circles on a piece of paper, right, for all the planets. That's actually a pretty good approximation for how thin the solar system is. Everything does orbit. Things don't orbit, you know, if we draw this on the board, it doesn't orbit coming way out this way or at really odd angles. Everything is very close to the same angle. That counts for the sun, that counts for the that counts for most of the major moons of the planets as well. So they all orbit in the same direction as well. So we don't have planets, all the planets, if you look down from above, all the planets go down, go around the sun in the same direction. You don't have Mercury going this way and Venus going around the opposite direction. Everything's going in the same direction. And it tells us something about how the planets formed originally. Now when we look at smaller solar system objects, they're a little bit different. 
comets and asteroids are a little bit different. They get to be, they can be far more eccentric. Uh, they can be orbiting in different directions. They can be orbiting in different planes. So comets can come in at all sorts of weird angles. So some of these uh, smaller solar system objects are a little bit different. But overall, Newton can still calculate them all pretty accurately. The planets really well. When it gets out to comets and asteroids, you can, but it gets harder and harder because they get deviated by all the planets. If you're just trying to consider the motions of the planets, it doesn't matter what the asteroids and comets are doing because they're not going to affect the orbit of a planet. However, the planets can affect the orbits of a comet, and a comet or an asteroid. So if you want to figure out when a comet is coming back, you not only have to consider the sun, which is what it's mainly orbiting, but if it passes close to Jupiter, that can affect its orbit. It doesn't have to be super close. It can just there, Jupiter can deviate its orbit a little bit. If it passes close to the Earth or to any of the other planets, that can deviate its orbit. So the calculations become far more complex. You not only have to consider the sun and the, and the object, but you've got to add in all the planets and any other large object it might come close to. Even a comet passing close to an asteroid could have its orbit changed a little bit. And it doesn't take a whole lot to change that significantly. So some of the orbits, some of it gets a lot more complex. Most of the large objects we can calculate really, really well. So when we look at some examples of satellites here, the satellite orbits, first satellite launched um, 1957, October. That was Sputnik 1. That was the first thing that was launched into space to actually into orbit. Didn't escape from the Earth, but it went into orbit around the Earth. So it followed an orbit, uh, something like number one here, the yellow orbit. It was launched up and made a number of orbits around the Earth. That all depends on how much velocity you can launch something with. If you don't launch something with very much velocity, right, if I just throw something up, if we launch a rocket, it goes up. And it comes back down, right? If you ever launched a little model rocket or seen a little model rocket launch, it goes up, reaches a certain height, and then will turn around and come back down, like number three here. You don't op if you don't launch it with enough velocity, it's not going to get away from the Earth. The Earth's gravity will turn around and pull it back down. It will always try to slow it down, but if you don't give it enough velocity, it will turn around and come back down to the Earth. So earlier rockets were used, but they'd be launched up, and you could launch them up and come back down to a different location on the Earth. So early rockets during World War II were used not to get anything to space, but were used for the war effort. So they were you know, launched more on a trajectory like number three. They couldn't go into orbit. We didn't have a powerful enough rocket until the late 1950s that could actually get something into orbit. And at that point, Sputnik 1 was able to follow path one, an intermediate velocity, where you can get a circular or an elliptical orbit, where the object gets away from the Earth and doesn't come back down. However, shortly after that, we also wanted to start exploring the solar system. Getting things into Earth orbit is great, and that takes less energy, but it takes even more energy to actually get it on path two. If we want to send something to Mars, if we want to send something to Jupiter, if we want to send something to Venus, We've got to actually get away from the Earth's gravity. So you have to launch it with enough velocity that it is no longer bound to the Earth. That doesn't mean the Earth's gravity doesn't pull on it. In fact, the Earth's gravity pulls on anything in the universe. Just like your gravity does, or the sun's gravity. 
If we looked at gravitational force, remember it was the force is g a constant times the masses of the two objects divided by the distance. There's no way to make that zero. Okay, g is just some constant. The distance between objects is something. It might get really big, but it's always some number. And masses are not going to be zero. So anything with mass is always being pulled on by the Earth. It doesn't matter how far away it gets. But you might get far enough away that it cannot, it can no longer slow it down, stop it, or bring it back. So when it gets far, if it gets far enough away, we can launch things to other planets, but even the Voyager spacecraft, the New Horizons spacecraft, things that we spent way out in space, Earth is still pulling on them. But they're moving fast enough that the Earth could never stop them and bring them back. Or the Sun. The Sun does not even have enough gravity to stop them and pull them back. But the gravitational force is always there. So when I say it escapes from the Earth, it does escape from the Earth, but the Earth's gravity is always pulling on it. Yeah? So other planets have gravity? Yeah. Any object with mass has gravity. You have gravity, I have gravity. Mm -hmm. They don't float. They, they might bounce, but they're still stuck to the, the ground. The gravity on the Earth is about, on the Moon is about one sixth the Earth. So it's a lot less. Oh, I thought the heat made them no. do that. Nope. nope, there is still gravity. If you went to Mars, you could walk around on Mars. The gravity would be less. You feel like you weighed a lot less, but of course you've got this big bulky spacesuit that more than doubles your weight, so it kind of cancels out. But yeah, the gravity is still there. Gravity exists any place. Any, anything that, any object that has mass, so unless it's completely massless, which is nothing, right? any matter that we have has some mass, it has some gravity. Some of them are going to be really low. It's a small object. If you ever were going to walk on a small asteroid or a comet, you might feel like you only weighed a couple pounds. Do we have the most gravity? Earth, no. The more mass you have, the more gravity. So Jupiter, Saturn, other planets have far more mass than us, would have uh, the most gravity. Of any object in the solar system that we could actually walk on, yes, we do. So how would it be different on those planets? On like Jupiter? Yeah. You couldn't because there's no surface. They have clouds, but it's just clouds and gases the whole way down. It's so hot, so high pressures, that there is nothing that is solid. So you couldn't really walk on it. You could land on Mars, but Mars is smaller than the Earth. You could land on Venus, but Venus is a little bit smaller than the Earth. Any of the moons in the solar system you could land on, but they're all smaller than the Earth. Now, if you looked at planets outside our solar system, there are some that are bigger than the Earth, and the gravity would be stronger. So there are other objects that you could walk on, gravity would be stronger than the Earth's. But within the solar system, we're the strongest. Strongest that you could walk on. Again, Sun has a lot more gravity, but we're not going for a walk on the Sun. Jupiter, Saturn. Would you just weigh more? If you could, if Jupiter, had, say, say Jupiter had a solid surface, you would weigh a lot more. In fact, you would probably be unable to walk. It would be that much. I mean, if you weigh Jupiter is what, about 300 times the mass of the Earth? You'd have to figure out the difference. Mean, you'd weigh, I'd have to look up the exact number, but you would weigh a lot more on Jupiter. So instead of, you know, if you could move, it would be like struggling to move because you would not, instead of weighing your weight, you could weigh five, ten times more. Well, that's going to be pretty hard to move around if you weighed, you know, imagine yourself weighed down with enough weight of ten times your weight. Well, you're going to have trouble moving around. 
that's what Jupiter would be like. If you could, if, you know, theoretically, if you could walk on it. The, 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 the more mass, the more mass, I'm going to qualify it with that because bigger doesn't necessarily mean more mass. It does in Jupiter's case, but not always. But more mass, the more material that's there, the bigger the, bigger the, gra bigger the force of gravity and the more you're going to weigh. Okay. So we said some of these, uh, some of these, orbit two is the one that's interesting, right? If we want to send out spacecraft. These ones can achieve what we call escape velocity. So we get them at a high enough velocity that the Earth's gravity is always slowing them down, but the Earth's gravity is not strong enough to stop them. If they ever got away from the Earth and it went far enough away and they stopped, the Earth's gravity would then be pulling on them and they would accelerate back to Earth. That's what happens when I throw something up in the air. I get it a certain distance away from the Earth. Earth's gravity slowed it down, stopped it. Once it stops, it doesn't just sit there up in the air, right? Gravity is still pulling on it, so gravity would pull it back down. So if the spacecraft were not launched with enough velocity, it would come back down to Earth. We can also use gravity to modify the orbits of the spacecraft. So this is how we actually launch a lot of craft now. You can build a massive, massive rocket if you want to send a, a craft to the outer solar system. You can build a gigantic rocket. However, it gets to be expensive. It's a lot of fuel. It's a lot of stuff to get it launched. We also find that we can launch smaller rockets and put it in a smaller orbit and then use the planets as gravitational assists. We can get energy from the planetary orbits. So Voyager 2 actually visited four planets. It was lucky that when it was launched, we had all the planets on the same side of the sun so it could go from one to the other, as you might imagine. If you have, you're launching from Earth in here close to the sun, if Jupiter's over here, you travel out to Jupiter, you can't turn around and go back across the whole solar system to go over to Saturn there. The distances are tremendous. It takes years to get out to Jupiter. It would take even longer to get back. But when everything's on the same side of the sun, which it happened to be in the 1970s, we were able to launch one craft that went to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So it used the gravity of Jupiter to change its orbit. You pass close to Jupiter, its gravity is going to pull on you. And you can use that to direct it towards Saturn. You can use the gravity of Saturn to direct it out to Uranus and the gravity of Uranus to direct it out to Neptune. So one craft here, you know, NASA really got its money's worth. You got to explore four planets for you know, the price of one, essentially, for one spacecraft. And you could observe all of them. Some of the others, New Horizons, which went to, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, just a question. Yeah. You said that it was launched in the 70s. Yes. How many years did it take them to complete the mission? To complete the mission, um, I didn't put the exact launch date there. It was 77, I believe. And if it was 77, I might, I might be a year or two off, it reached Neptune in 89. So it took it over a decade to do this entire thing. I mean, that's how big the distances out there are. Yeah. Just hit interstellar space. Yes, the, both of the Voyager craft have now hit what we call interstellar space. They're outside of the influence of the sun. Not just the sun's gravity, but actually the sun's magnetic field and the whole big thing that it puts out there. So it's actually into interstellar space. It still means that if the sun, if the sun was a little basketball here, and the next, the next star would be another basketball across, over, out and over in the Middle East, we've barely left the surface of the sun. 
in terms of actual interstellar distance. So yes, it's an interstellar space, but it's moved you know, a millimeter or so away from that sun, considering how big the distances actually are. So yes, it's an interstellar space, but I don't want to give a false impression that it's, oh, it'll be at a star in a, in a year or in 10 years. It would take it tens of thousands, you know, thousands of years to get to an, even the nearest star if it was heading towards that. But yes, Voyager is Voyagers are the ones that are the furthest out there. Good. Other? Alrighty. So we also have different types of missions that have been sent. Um, earlier, these are all flyby missions. Flyby missions are great because they're easier, but they're bad because they fly by and that's it. So, you know, fly by the room and you come back, you can't turn around and come back. Remember, when something is moving out in space at a really high speed, there's no gravity. I mean, there is gravity, there is no friction, there is no air resistance to slow it down. So if we get this craft going at tens of thousands of miles an hour, it's going. The only way to stop it, well, you could let it crash into a planet. That would stop it, but that won't do you very much good for terms of exploration. Um, well, you'd have to have enough fuel to slow it down. That means you'd have to have as much fuel as it took to get it up to that speed to slow it back down. So they can't. Most of them you simply cannot stop. So most of these just flew by. There was no way to put it into orbit to really explore the craft, the, the, the planet. You had to just fly by. And in some cases you had very limited time. You'd have you know, maybe a couple of weeks at Jupiter or Saturn where you're getting close to it. But as you're doing it, you just have to fly where you're flying right by it. So that's what we mean by a flyby mission. It just flies by the planet and observes it. You don't have the luxury of saying, oh, this looks cool. Let me go look at that again. Because by the time you know it, you're already millions of miles past the planet. You can't turn around and go back. An orbiter mission is better. It's a little harder because it takes more energy. You've got to use sometimes flying by the planets to slow them down to get them in the right orbit. But you can have an orbiter. Then you can actually study the object for a longer period of time. You can say, hey, this looks interesting. I want to go back and look at it again, next orbit around. So orbiters are a little bit better in that sense, but they also can only visit generally one object. If you put something in orbit around Jupiter, Jupiter's gravity, gravity is a heck of a lot stronger than Earth. It's never going anyplace else. So you're never going to get it away from Jupiter. You're never going to have enough fuel to break from Jupiter's orbit. You might get into orbit around Jupiter or Saturn. You're never getting away if you put it in orbit. If you're just flying by, you can pass right by it at a high enough speed. Your orbit will be changed and directed to the next planet if you choose to do that. And we've done that with other craft. We've used them to observe multiple uh, objects, to be able to study multiple objects. All right, so when we get more than two objects, this is a cluster of stars. We call it a globular star cluster. Um, this is what things are really like. And this is where it becomes more and more complicated. If you really want to figure out what's going on in this cluster of stars, you have to take each star, because they're all massive. If they pass close to each other, their gravity is going to affect each other. And you have to calculate the gravitational force between them and how they're moving. So if you know their positions and their velocities, you can use Newton's laws between each pair of stars. But you can have hundreds of thousands of stars here. So you can imagine each pair is a lot of pairs. Right? This one matching up with 100,000 other stars, and then this one has 100,000 other stars that are pulling on it. You can do that calculation and figure out you know, what the long-term structure of this will be, but it takes a lot of work. It's not something you can do very easily. A lot of these calculations have to be done on 
you know, supercomputers. You know, not an ordinary laptop, not an ordinary desktop, but you have to put them on supercomputers and you run them for months to actually simulate what's happening. Because you're doing all of those, you have to do each of those calculations, and you have to do each of those calculations for every single second. So you let things move a second or two seconds, where are they now? Then you've got to do the calculation all over again. It can take an incredible amount of time to be able to figure out really what's going on. It simplifies in our solar system because a comet coming through comes close to the Earth. It might we might affect its orbit, but because we're so much more massive, it doesn't affect our orbit. So the Earth's orbit is unchanged. If we send Voyager past Jupiter, Voyager sped up and changed direction. So did Jupiter. But Jupiter is so many times more massive that you wouldn't notice it. It would be negligible. It would be something you couldn't even measure. So some things, like the solar system, it's a lot easier. But when you have a whole bunch of stars or a whole bunch of particles, and you want to calculate all of these, it's not a difficult calculation. It's just a very tedious calculation because you've got to calculate. We want to move, figure out the motions of this star. I've got to figure out how every other star in this cluster is pulling on it. Some are going to be more stronger. Some are going to be a lot weaker over here. But who knows where it's going, if it's traveling in this direction or that direction. That's going to change over time. So really, it gets a lot more complicated. And that's what you know, the universe is really like. You have to calculate to really get things perfectly. You'd have to calculate the force between every pair of objects. And that's one of the difficulties with doing things like cometary orbits or asteroid orbits, because they are so much smaller. And now, everything else matters. Figuring out the Earth or the Moon, all those little objects don't matter. So how is this used? Well, one example is the discovery of a new planet. Actually, in 1781, we discovered the first new planet that had been known since ancient times. That was Uranus. And that was about 100 years after Newton's work had been published. So Newton's work was relatively new at the time. It had been working great. But when they started mapping out the orbit of Uranus, it wasn't working. It wasn't orbiting, orbiting exactly the way Newton's law said it did. Well, that could mean one of two things. That could mean Newton's law is wrong. Maybe it works in some cases, but it doesn't work at larger and larger distances. So maybe it wasn't universal. Maybe it applied on the Earth and in parts of the solar system, but not further out. Or there could be another planet out there. Because another planet would be tugging on it. And if we don't know about it, that could change its orbit if there were another orbit out there beyond uh, Uranus. So two astronomers working independently did the calculation. That was Adams and Leverrier. Both did this calculation to figure out where the planet would be. Where would it be that could be influencing sorry, Uranus? That should be Uranus. Neptune is the planet that was actually discovered. So uh, back in the 1840s, Neptune was discovered very close to the point where it was predicted. So we actually predicted the existence of a new planet, pointed telescopes there, and in that rough area we found a new planet. They then tried it again with Neptune, because Neptune didn't look like it was working, moving quite correctly. And after decades of searching, they, searching, they found Pluto. But Pluto was not, that later found to be way too small, and Neptune's orbit was actually found not to be uh, deviating as the way they had thought. They had not understood all the masses completely enough out there. So Neptune was a great discovery. It was a great confirmation of Newton's laws. Because when your, your theory, in this case the theory of gravity, doesn't explain something right, like the motion of the planets, 
you have to come up with an explanation. You either have to change your law or find some other explanation. In this case, they were able to find an explanation that said, hey, if we find another planet out there, then Newton's laws are verified. All right, so finishing up here, I gave you a few uh, definitions of this, which again, aphelion and perihelion, I gave you those two as the closest and furthest spots to the sun. Uh, escape velocity is when you escape from the object, never to return. If you launch with a certain velocity from the moon, you will never go back, you won't go back to the moon. You will head out into space. You'll have enough velocity to be able to escape. In reality, I talked about that things are really much more complex. There's not just two or three objects. You're not talking about just the Earth, Moon, and the Sun. But there are all sorts of other objects. And when you get like a cluster of stars where they're all similar in mass, then those gravities are all important. Um, and then finally, we talked about the discovery of Neptune, which was really a big triumph for Newton's law of gravity. Because otherwise, if we had not been able to discover Neptune, people would have brought doubts into Newton's gravity. Why is it not working? Why does it not predict the orbit of Uranus correctly? Okay, questions? No, no, no. All right. Well, then we will jump on and get into four so we can finish that up, get a good start on it, and finish it up next time. Um, this is divided actually into five parts, but the first two are really, really short. So the first two things I want to look at are coordinate systems and seasons. So one of the things in astronomy, we want to figure out position. It's like you want to figure out position here on the Earth. Where are you on the Earth to locate yourself? Astronomers studying the sky need to know to be able to say where something is. And you can't just point, you know, if you're trying to point out something to a friend, you can say, hey, it's over there. But if an astronomer is trying to you know, point it out to someone else with a telescope, they need to give an exact location. So how do we do that? Well, on Earth, we use latitude and longitude. Latitude is measured by how far you are north or south of the equator. So further north, higher latitude. Further south, lower latitude. And we measure the latitudes north and south. So zero degrees latitude, you're on the equator. Zero, if you're at zero degrees, you're right on the equator here. Um, then you can measure further up. So you go further up, you go up to 45 degrees, you can go all the way up to 90 degrees. 90 degrees would be the North Pole. So that tells you one position. But if you say something is at a certain latitude, so if something is at a latitude of 45 degrees, all you're really saying is it's on this circle someplace. It could be anywhere around the Earth. We need two points to be able to get an exact location. So the other one that we use is longitude. Longitude measures circles going north and south, through the North Pole and South Pole. And it's measured from, in this case, of what we call the prime meridian. There's a difficulty with determining longitude as compared to latitude. Everybody can agree where, where latitude starts because it's the equator. The equator is the same. However, all of these circles, there's nothing that's really special about any one of them. Right? No, one goes through Greenwich, England. One goes through you know, York, Pennsylvania. One goes through San Francisco. One goes through Tokyo. You know, why is one of them any, more, any better or worse than another? You know, 
the equator is right in the middle. There is no middle when you're cutting the Earth the other direction because of the way the Earth, ro the Earth rotates. So everything goes through that uh, same positioning. So one had to be selected. And when this was done back in the 1700s, Greenwich, England was selected as the reference point that everyone agreed on, that all different countries agreed on that this is going to be where we're measuring. Before that, everyone used their own. So Engl the English might have used one going through London. French sailors would have used one going through Paris, Spanish through Madrid. Right? You pick your capital, and that's where your prime meridian, your meridian is going to be. Yeah. Is there, that's where the Royal Observatory is. Okay. So, and wh why was England? Well, you know, who was the big power back in the 1700s? It was England. So theirs ended up winning out and being something uh, continuous for everyone to use. So that's the one that ended up winning out. But th that's where the Royal Observatory happens to be. So that's why they picked that instead of you know, London. It was where the observatory was. So it was easier to keep track of things. And then everybody agrees on that. And we still use it to this day as the reference point for uh, longitude. But you have to pick a zero point. So if you want, you have to pick an exact zero point to measure things. And then you measure them east or west. So we're west of the prime meridian. So we are a west longitude. If you go off into Europe, further into Europe, then you're at an east longitude. Until you get around to the other side, and you get to 180, and then it uh, starts over, over again. So you can go 180 degrees each direction. But this means that by giving these two numbers, you can now pinpoint exactly where anything is. So I've given you the numbers in this case for the Washington Monument. If you get a latitude of 38.8895 degrees and a longitude of 77 point, that's north, sorry, that makes a difference too, uh, 77.0353 degrees west, put that in your GPS, and if I didn't make a typo in my thing, you'd end up at the Washington Monument. So that's the precise location. That's very precise to several decimal points. So that should get you right to the Washington Monument. So that's exactly the location. So we can pinpoint an exact location. If we wanted to figure out where this classroom is, you could do the same thing. Find a latitude precisely. Find the longitude precisely. And you could then get an exact location. So astronomers need to do the same thing. We need to be able to do this in the sky. And what they use are two terms that are comparable to latitude and longitude. They use the declination. Declination, remember latitude was the distance measured north or south of the Earth's equator. Declination is the distance measured north or south of the celestial equator. Again, that's a standard reference point, divides the globe into two pieces. So it makes it very convenient. Everybody can agree on, again on where the celestial equator is. And then you can measure it in degrees. You can go up to the North Pole, which would be 90 degrees. The North Pole star, Polaris, is very close to a 90 degree declination. A star on the equator would have a zero degree declination. So you could then measure whether the declination is north or if it's south. You would, you would go, in this case, astronomers do it as negative values. So we tend to, on Earth, we do north and south. You don't, usually, don't, often, don't always use negatives. Astronomers would call the declinations that are north positive, declinations that are south negative. So if you're above the equator, it's a positive declination. If you're below the equator, it's a negative declination. That's measured in degrees, just like latitude is here on the Earth. Now we need a second one. We need a second way to be able to measure these. And that is uh, we need a longitude. And the longitude in the sky is called right ascension. 
right ascension is measured from the vernal equinox. Vernal equinox, the position of the sun on the first day of spring. Why? Because that's what we chose as our reference point. We could have picked the autumnal equinox. We could have picked the summer solstice. We could have picked some random point, any place in between. And you could use that as your reference point as long as everybody agrees on it. This is just the one that astronomers agreed as being their reference point for longitude. Again, there's, the only special thing about it is that it happens to be the first day of spring, the location of the sun on that day. That is what we use as our reference point. And you measure everything. In this case, you measure everything eastward. So unlike on the Earth, we go east and west to 180 degrees and meet on the other side. Astronomers don't do that. Astronomers measure everything eastward and go around from 0 to 24. Yeah, they measure it in hours. Not degrees, hours. You can measure, you can convert it. There's uh, just a factor of 15 between the two. You can easily convert one to the other. But astronomers measure it in hours. And what that really tells you is it can tell you the positioning, but it can also tell you time uh, relative to the sky as well. So it has some other meaning that they use hours for that. But there are 24 hours of right ascension, just like there are 24 hours in a day. So everything is divided up into hours in that case. And what it means, again, without going into too much detail, that we can then use the declination and the right ascension of any object to pinpoint it on the celestial sphere. So instead of saying that Betelgeuse is that bright star in Orion over there, if an astronomer wanted to point out, they could say it's a declination of, and that's positive, so 7.40706 degrees, meaning it's a little bit above the equator, but not by much. Right? 90 degrees would be all the way up. This is only 7 degrees from the equator. And it's a right ascension of almost 6 hours, 5.91953 going around. So almost 6 hours, almost a quarter of the way around the sky from the vernal equinox. Right? 6 hours would be one quarter of the entire sky. So we can use that. Just like we could pinpoint the Washington Monument by giving you a latitude and longitude, astronomer can pinpoint a location on the sky. So that's just how we can determine where things are in the sky. So again, I said these first couple were real short. Uh, summarizing, uh, latitude and longitude, what we use here on Earth to determine positions. Declination and right ascension measure the distances on the celestial sphere. So declination, similar to latitude. Right ascension, similar to longitude. All right. All right. Well, the second thing I wanted to look at was the seasons. This is the other short little section before we get into the rest of the chapter. Uh, seasons. Right? We're going through a seasonal change right now. We're coming up very close. What are we? We're only about, a, about 10 days away from the beginning of fall. So it's still summer now. What that means is that in, summer, in spring and summer, the, Earth is, the sun is above the celestial equator. But right now, the sun is getting lower and lower in the sky. And coming up here on around the 20th or 21st, it's going to cross the celestial equator and head south. So that's what we mean. That's what we tend to think of at seasons. But what is really causing the seasons is the tilt of the Earth's axis. And you've probably heard the Earth's axis is tilted by this 23 and a half degrees. So the Earth doesn't orbit straight up and down. If it did, we wouldn't have any seasons be like spring or fall all year round. So 
it's only because of that tilt that we have, have seasons. What that means is the more the tilt or the less the tilt, the, the amount of the seasons would change. If we were tilted very little, no seasons. If we were tilted at 40 or 50 degrees, you know, winters would get much more harsh here. And so would summers. You'd have much more widely varying seasons. You'd have extremely cold winters, and you'd have extremely hot summers, you know, much more so than we have today. The other thing that sometimes comes up is, well, what about the changing distance? We know that the Earth has an elliptical orbit, so sometimes it's closer to the sun. Shouldn't we be warmer when we're closer to the sun and colder when we're further away? No. That's a possibility, and we can think about it for a minute, we can, because it does make a prediction. It does predict that when we're closest to the sun, it would be summer, right? When we're further away, it would be winter. It doesn't matter where you are on the Earth, right? If you're close to the sun, whether you're in Pennsylvania or Australia, you should have the same season. It should be summer if you're closest to the sun. So it does make a prediction that the seasons would be the same in the northern and southern hemisphere. But we know that they're not. Right? If you go down to um, Australia right now, it's the end of winter. So they just came out of their cold. I mean, July is, cold, is coldest down when you get down well down south of the equator. July would be the coldest time. The seasons are actually backwards. It's also true that there is an elliptical orbit, but it's only a 3% change in distance. It really doesn't make all that much of a difference. It will help, and actually, it actually moderates our seasons in the northern hemisphere a little bit because we are closest to the sun in uh, Janu in January, meaning that our that mild makes our winters a little more mild than they would be otherwise. We're furthest away in July, which makes our summers a little bit more mild, but it doesn't make a big difference. The underlying issue, what's really causing the seasons that we see, is the tilt of the Earth's axis. So what we see is the Earth is actually tilted something like this at 23 and a half degrees. So the distance doesn't matter, but when it's tilted towards the sun, then this part here, in this case, this would be summer, this northern hemisphere is now getting direct sunlight. The sun is beating straight down on you, and it's going to be warmer. We also have that the days are going to be longer. So there's really two things that change. It's how direct the sun is hitting you. When you go out on a summer day, right? the sun is way up overhead. You feel it beating down on you, and it feels hot. Go out at noontime on a nice on a winter day, you can still feel the sun out there. It might be bright, but it's a lot lower in the sky. It's hitting you less directly, so it's not heating you up as much. So down here, the sunlight is much is much more spread out over a wider area of the surface. That same amount of sunlight has to be spread out more and does not warm things up as much. So there's two things that are really changing. The, the tilt is what's causing the season. But it changes how directly the sunlight is hitting you, and it changes the length of the day, how long the day is. Right? We know how long the days were in summer. Right? Sun's up at 5 in the morning. Right now, sun doesn't get up till about 6.30 or so, and it's going to get later and later. Right? A month from now, it's going to be not rising till 7 and 7.30. So it'll get later and later as time goes on. And what's happening in the evening? Right? Summertime, it's nice and sun's out at 9, 9.30 at night. Now it starts setting at 8, 8, 8.30, 8 o'clock, 7.30. Now by the time we get to the end of class, you know, it'll be dark when we start class, right? It'll probably still be dark when we start class. And then in the evening, the sun will be setting at like 5.30. So the amount of time the sun 
is up. Tahitu might change from 15 hours to 9 hours. Well, if you've got a lot more time to be heated up, you're going to get a lot hotter as well. So it's two things. It's the combination of that direct sunlight hitting you and it's hitting you for a longer period of time. At the equator, there essentially are no seasons. The equator is always the same amount of time. It does have tilt a little bit, but it's always very close to the central portion. So it really doesn't change a whole lot. So the equator wouldn't really have widely varying seasons. So if you're someplace equatorial, it's just warm all the time because you're pretty much close, you're close to that region. It's not going to have a big change between what you get in December versus what you get in July. If you go further and further north, you can get more extreme. If you go up to what we call the Arctic Circle, which is the very northern tip of Alaska, so not just Alaska itself, but the very northern tip, the further north you go, the more extreme that daylight change becomes. So if you ever travel further north, if you go up to Alaska, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big change, and that's 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 still quite a bit further north. But if you go up to Alaska, it can be more more extreme. If you hear the land of the midnight sun, if you're at the very northern tip of Alaska, you got to be really. You can't just go to Anchorage or Juneau or anything. You got to be up, you know, Point Barrow, way at the top of Alaska. It will stay dark for yeah. It will stay dark for months, and you will have days where the sun is up for months. If you go to the North Pole, it's six months and six months. At the North Pole, the sun rises on March 21st and sets on September 21st. Now, you might think it would get really hot up there because it's up all the time, but it's really low in the sky. It's like a winter day here. The sun might go up a little higher, and then it will go down low, but it just never dips below the horizon. But the further north you go, the more that will be. Further south you go, the less it will be. You go down to Florida, you'll notice that there's less of a change in daylight between summer and winter than there is up here, than there is up further, up further north. Uh, the tropics are the other one. We talk about the Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn. Um, those are the regions where the sun will actually be straight overhead. Those are within a certain distance. Anything between here and here are the tropics. Those are where the sun will actually be straight overhead at some point during the year. That doesn't happen in the U.S., the tropic, well, except for Hawaii. During Hawaii, the continental U.S., the Tropic of Cancer is just below the southern tip of Florida. So there's no place in Florida that's going to actually have the sun directly overhead. It's going to get pretty darn close and you're not going to notice the difference if you're in South Florida. If you're in South Florida at the beginning of summer, the sun's going to look like it's straight overhead. But if you actually measure it, take your object, measure a shadow, it's going to cast a really small shadow. Not a lot, but it would. If you go for it, but if you're actually at the tropics at some point during the year, anywhere between here and here, at some point, you would get no shadow. The sun would be directly overhead. So that's what we mean by the tropics uh, or, the or the Arctic Circle. So the Arctic Circle is the area where you would get either, you could get 24 hours of daylight, 24 hours of darkness, depending on the time of year. All right, so, so what do we get? Again, um, this is kind of just summarizing again what I went over on the last slide. But during the summer, the sun is closer to being more directly overhead. It might not be directly overhead for us. In this location, it might get up to about 70 degrees. 90 degrees would be straight overhead. 70 is pretty high up there. And you notice that. You notice the sun beating down on you in the summer. And it's really high up overhead. So it is more directly overhead. And the sun is in the sky for more than 12 hours. If you get to the Arctic Circle, Again, very tip of Alaska, northern Scandinavia, 
not a lot of heavily, not, not Siberia, northern Siberia, some very lightly populated areas because it is so cold. But you do get very long periods of time with sunlight. If you get to that, it's 24 hours. But if you go up to Alaska at all, right, Alaska in the summer, and you're waiting for nighttime, it might never come. Because the sun will dip below the horizon, but it might not get very far below the horizon. So it might be like a dusky twilight, and then the sun will rise again. So it might actually only be below the horizon for a couple of hours when you get that far, uh, that far north. So uh, North Arctic Circle, there is also an Antarctic Circle, which is the same thing in the southern hemisphere. The tropics means the sun is at the zenith, straight overhead, one day a year. So if you're at the Tropic of Cancer on the first day of summer, the sun will be directly overhead. Any place north of that, which is all of the continental US, it'll be a little bit further away. The further north you go, the further away it's going to be from the horizon. If you're between the tropics and the equator, you'll get two days a year. You'll actually get two years. So even on the equator, two days a year, the sun will be directly overhead. In that case, the sun will be overhead on the first day of spring and the first day of fall at the equator. Those are the two times it would be directly overhead. But it's always going to be really close. And in fact, at the equator, the sun never gets further away from being straight overhead at noon pretty much than it does at its maximum here. So it's like you know, summer all the time. That's why it's always so much hotter there. So one of the things this means, one of the things to think about, though, is the solstice. When the sun is highest in the sky for the northern hemisphere is June 21st. Why is this not the hottest day of the year? The sun is highest in the sky. It's also the longest day. Right? Longest time between daylight. So it's, you're going to be getting the most heat, the most direct heat and the most heat. Why isn't it going to be the hottest day of the year? Remember this when you come to write up your project because I ask you this question? It's one of the things I ask you to answer as part of your analysis. And I'm giving you the answer right now. So no excuse for getting it wrong. It takes time. You have the Earth frozen right, for all that time. And you start warming up. Well, this might be the hottest day, but I'm still dethawing the Earth from what it was all winter. So by the time we get into July and August, now we've had time to heat the Earth and we hit our hottest time. Because when is it hottest? July, August is usually when it's the hottest. June 21st is generally not the hottest day of the year. Same thing in December. Right? December 21st should be the coldest day of the year if you just go by the information I gave you. It's on its lowest in the sky and it's the shortest, less length of daylight. So it's not because it takes time to warm the earth after a cool winter or takes time to heat the earth up after a hot summer. December 21st, I can pretty much guarantee you this year, will not be the coldest day of the year. Maybe it will be. You know, may, you know, freak act, act things can happen, but in general, we know when the coldest weather is, right? It's not generally December, although it can be cold, but January and into February is usually a lot colder. And that's just because there is some variation there, and it does take some time uh, to change those temperatures. So again, remember that when it comes to your, comes to your project. All right, so finishing up the seasons, two things really to look at. The underlying cause, that's the tilt of the Earth's axis. The changing distance between the Earth and the Sun really makes no difference, minimal difference. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter for other planets or other objects in the solar system. Pluto is vastly influenced by its distance between the Earth and the Sun, between, the, between it and the Sun. But it can come 
hundreds of millions of miles closer when it's closest, and it's hundreds of millions of miles further away. So it's, it has a big change in difference, not just a couple percent. But you know, if you have a 20 or 30 percent change in distance, it can matter. So I don't want to give you the impression that distance never matters. It doesn't matter for the Earth because the orbit is so close to being circular. If something has a really elliptical orbit, that can, can impact it. And then what this does, what this 23 and a half degree tilt does is change two things. How directly the sunlight hits you and how long it is in the sky. Those two things are directly then affected by it and that's what really causes our seasons. All right, questions? <coughs> All right, well let's move on to time and how we go about keeping time. Um, that was one of the jobs of the early astronomer, was keeping time, developing a calendar. Because we didn't have all of the technology and cl accurate clocks or anything that exists today to be able to keep track of time. So everything astronomical, er everything we use for measuring time is based on astronomical time frames. So we have a day, a week, a month, and a year. Each of those are astronomically related. They come from astronomy. The day. How long it takes the Earth to rotate once. So the rising and setting of the sun, the moon, the planets, that's, that's how we define our day, comes from the rotation of the Earth. The week, that's a little harder one. Usually the other three are easy. But why do we have seven days in a week? Well, seven days in a week are because there were seven objects to, ancient, to the ancient astronomers that moved among the stars. The sun and the moon and the five planets. Each day is named in honor of one of those objects. Doesn't, doesn't work well in English, but if you look in other languages, French, Spanish, each of them has a specific day. So day for Mercury, day for Mars, day for Jupiter. So that's why we have seven. If they discovered Uranus, maybe we'd have eight days in a week. If they had known that in ancient times, if there had been another planet, or if they had not discovered one of the planets, maybe we'd only have six days in a week. But that's why there's seven is because of an astronomical thing, but it's just the, the things that were known, the objects that were known that were different. The month is based on the phases of the moon. The phases of the moon, it takes um, 30, 30 days roughly for the moon to go through a set of phases. That's about the length of a month. Very close, actually 29 and a half days, but pretty close. We can actually, our month is based on the phases of the moon. And then the year that we use is the revolution of the Earth. How long does it take the Earth to revolve around the Sun? So they're all, the day, week, month, and year are all astronomically related. So they all come from something in astronomy. So how do we measure some of these? Now, how long is a day? Well, it depends in a way on how you measure it. Um, there are two days. There is the solar day relative to the Sun. That's what we use for time. So. We, as in general public, uses the solar day. The solar day is measured relative to the sun. That's 24 hours long. However, if you measure the rotation of the Earth, if you're just out there in space watching the Earth and watching something ro rotate around, it takes it 23 hours and 56 minutes to come back to the same spot. So if you watch something rotate, some line here, and you let that rotate around here, 23 hours and 56 minutes later, it's back to the same orientation it had in space. So it rotated from here, and that line is now straight up and down again. 23 hours and 56 minutes later.
However, the sun is not at the same position. So that's, the, that's the, what we call the sidereal day relative to the stars. If there's some distant star way out there in the distance, it's going to be in the same position. And that's what's shown in the little inset here. You have the sun and the star in the same location. 23 hours and 56 minutes later, the, the star is back to the same spot. But the sun isn't. Why? Because we're not sitting still while we rotate. If we just stayed in one place and rotated, then the solar and the sidereal day would be exactly the same. But we're not. During that day, that the Earth rotated, it moved about 1 360th of the way around the Sun. So it moved a little bit, meaning the Sun's position changed. And now the Earth has to rotate a little bit more, four more minutes worth, to get the Sun back in the same position. So the Sun was here, due south here. 24 hours later, the Sun is due south again. It has to rotate that extra four minutes in order to get back in the same spot. So astronomers can measure things with sidereal days because they're looking at the stars. But the actual time that we use, the time that your watch keeps, any other clocks keep, are all solar time. We're always measuring the time relative to the sun. Um, so that has nothing to do with leap years. Sometimes I get that and people will say, oh, that's where the leap year is coming from. That has nothing to do with it. We're actually using solar days, and the solar day is defined, as I'll show in a little bit, an average solar day is 24 hours long. So leap years come from other considerations that we'll look at after. So what do we mean by sol what is solar time? There's a couple different types of solar time that we look at. There is apparent solar time, which is the sundial time. Where is the sun in the sky? You can use a sundial to determine the time of day, and that is the apparent solar time. The problem is, it's not the same from day to day because the Earth is in an elliptical orbit, so sometimes the sun moves. Remember, we're, we're really moving, but sometimes it looks like the sun is moving faster because we're closer to it. Sometimes it looks like it's moving slower when we're further away. So the, the actual, the apparent solar day, that's what the sundial will tell you because that's all it can measure, but it's not useful because it can change in length. Days would be a little bit longer sometimes, or days would be a little bit shorter. So it's not the same from day to day. So what we actually use, what time we actually keep, is what we call the mean solar time. The mean solar time is exactly 24 hours. It can vary a little bit depending on where you are on Earth. But the mean solar day, we average that out so we get an average solar day. And that gives us the, and that's what we define to be exactly 24 hours. And that's what we use to keep time. We also have time zones. Why do we have time zones? It's really to minimize the time changes if you're traveling. Because technically, if you don't divide it into time zones, if you move a little bit east or west, the positioning of the sun has changed, so your time has changed. So you could have one time, and if you travel 50 or 100 miles west, then it's a little bit different time. So in order to coordinate things, we define time zones where everything in this region, from the east coast of the United States out to uh, part of the Midwest into Michigan and you know Michigan and stuff is all on the eastern time zone. If you travel past that, then you switch everything by one hour. So it minimizes that you don't have to change at each city keeping its own time, which would have been what was done a long time ago, that you only have to change when you cross a time zone line. So if you're traveling from east coast to west, you have to change from eastern to central to mountain to Pacific, but it's a lot less than changing 
constantly, then your time changing constantly as you go across. So that's why we kind of divide things into these various different regions. It minimizes time, tra- time changes as you're traveling. Again, a long time ago, big deal. Right? How long did it take to get across the Atlantic a couple hundred, you know, hundred or two hundred years ago? It took forever, so the time change was meaningless. Nowadays, you can get across the country quickly. So it makes a much, it's much more important right now. The other one is daylight savings time, which we have, what, coming up in well, about two months now. We'll switch uh, off of daylight savings time, uh, which is really um, only done for uh, civil reasons. So, you know, uh, public, all, all it does, it doesn't really change anything, except it puts more sunlight hours in the evening. It's just shifting the time by one hour. So it doesn't change anything. This is the one that really has no astronomical basis um, because all it does is shift when the daylight is. Yeah. They've talked about it because it really doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, the idea is that it would be lighter in the evening when people are up so that you'd be using less electricity was the original thoughts for it. Whether that really makes a big difference is debatable. How much of a difference that actually makes is, you know, is subject to debate. So there are talk about, about getting rid of it and just leaving the time as it is. But that's all it, all it is is a shift. It doesn't change anything. You take away an hour or you take away an hour in the spring and you add an hour back in the fall. In the long run, everything's the same. All it does is shift things. So if the sun was going to set at, six, at 6.30 at some time, it's not going to set at 7.30. So it puts more daylight hours in the, in the evening. All right, so calendar. Again, we've talked about some of these. One of the problems with developing a calendar that astronomers had is that nothing is even because they're based on astronomical events. You know, if we had not done this, if we had just made a calendar and set a certain number of days or weeks or months or anything, but everything, because everything is astronomically uh, done astronomically, none of these numbers match up. Right? How many days are there in a month? Well, 29.5306. The exact number is important, but it's not, it's not 30. It's not 29. It's not an exact number. How many days are there in a year? Well, 35.2422. Again, there's no reason that there should be a certain even number of the Earth's rotations in the time it takes to go around the sun. There's no reason that has to be the same. Or with the moon going around the Earth. So what does this give us? This gives us months with uneven length to try to average them out to about 29 and a half. It gives us uh, leap years. This is where the leap year actually comes from, is the number of days in a year. Because it's about a quarter of a day. So that quarter of a day will build up over time. So some of the early calendars that we looked at, we talked about Stonehenge way back, we looked at some alignments there, that was a way of doing it. Uh, Mayans did the calendar based on Venus, very complicated calendar. Uh, The 12-year cycle of Jupiter gives the 12-year cycle of the Chinese zodiac. Based on Jupiter, so the Western did Western civilization did a lot of things based on the sun and the moon, but that wasn't everything. Other civilizations noticed other patterns, like Venus and the Mayans. So everything was based on the rising and setting of Venus in their calendar. Um, the 12-year cycle of Jupiter gives us the Chinese zodiac. So it was done a little bit. It was based all on Jupiter, and that's Jupiter has a 12-year orbital period, so its cycle was noted there. So other civilizations gave different meaning to them. But what we finally came up with, the calendar that we used for a long time, was what we call the Julian calendar. 
because it was put in place by Julius Caesar, so how we got the, had its name, what they did was approximate the year. 365 and a quarter days. So it's 365.2422. That's pretty close to 365 and a quarter. It's only this little bit of a day. Don't worry about it. And what you did was you added in the leap year. So that's when leap year started. So every fourth year you added a leap year so that this quarter day didn't keep building up. Because otherwise the Earth was getting you know, a little bit further around the sun each time. You add that extra day in, make the one year a little bit longer. Every four years brings things back into place. So after one year, the Earth is a quarter of a day further around the sun than it should be. After two years, it's a half a day. After three years, it's three quarters of a day. And then we add that extra day and it comes back to where it's supposed to be. So every fourth year, we balance things out and it comes out pretty good. And it worked really well for a long time. However, it's about an 11 minute difference. Big deal, right? But 11 minutes every year, you're getting 11 minutes ahead. 11 minutes, 11 minutes, 11 minutes, that adds up. So that by the, from the time of Caesar till the 1500s, spring was, was actually added up to 10 days. Spring was starting 10 days earlier because the Earth was getting further. And that 11 minutes every single day was adding up. So it became a problem, especially for the church, was that, you know, that was affecting when, when Easter Spring, Easter was occurring earlier and earlier because Easter is defined as the first full moon at a certain time of year. So as the times got earlier and earlier, Easter was now starting to occur not in late March, early April, but was starting to occur earlier and earlier in March. And it would have gotten worse. If you let it go for another thousand years, it would have gotten another, you added another week to that. And it would keep getting earlier and earlier. So it was a problem that would only continue to grow. So at this point, they had to make another calendar, which is what we use today. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah. When did, when did Julius Caesar like, introduce, like what year did? Caesar was what, like 10s, 8? Around zero, I mean, it's very close. It's about 1,500 years later. I, I have to look up the exact dates. If somebody happens to know, I cannot think of them off the top of my head. But it was, was it a few years BC or something, I think, I'm thinking? But I mean, it was very, very close to zero-ish, to within 50 years either way. So it was, this was 1,500 years worth of change that it took. So in the 1500s, the calendar was redone. So in 1582, we went with the Gregorian calendar done by Pope Gregory XIII. And what they did was they had to bring everything back into sync. So we had to cut out 10 days. Yeah. I'm sorry? 46 BC, thank you. I said plus or minus 50 years, so I was in there. <laughs> thank you. Um, so what he did, he had to do was to cut out 10 days of the year to get everything back into sync because of these 11 minutes we hadn't taken care of for a millennium and a half. So in that case, on that day, October 4th, you went to sleep on October 4th, you woke up on October 15th. Didn't change anything else. I mean, it wasn't changing the time. All it was was resetting our calendar to match what the sky was doing. So you had to drop those 10 whole days out of the calendar. That brought things back into sync so that the first day of spring was about when the first day of spring always was, had been. So 10 days out of the calendar. But we also had to then change how the leap year works so that we didn't have the problem again. Because otherwise it would continue to build up. And over 500 years, we would have, now it would have been a couple, it would only have been a few days, but it might have been you know, three or four days, we'd be off again. So we had to change the way the leap years worked. So Julius Caesar said that every fourth year was a leap year. 
Pope Gregory said different. He said we're going to change it so that every fourth year is a leap year except a century year has to be divisible by 400 to be a leap year. So that means that 2000 was a leap year, but any other century year, 1700, 1800, 1900 were not leap years. So if we were around in 1900, 1900 had 365 days. Well, 2100 will have 365 days. It will not be a leap year. And that takes care of that extra 11 minutes. There's still a minor difference, but it's getting small enough now that it's going to take tens of thousands of years to be able to see any variation between them. So that's what we use as our calendar right now, essentially. And so 2000 was a leap year. 2100, 2200, 2300 will not be leap years. And when you average that all out, it comes out very, very close to the average length of a, of a day. The average day length over the course of that time being equal to the average, uh, average number of days in a year. Yes? So I guess you just everybody had a big birthday on October 4th. <laughs> I don't know how they would have done that, but I mean the days would have passed. You just wouldn't have had that exact. I guess if you're born on February 29th, you only have a birthday every four years. I guess you just have to celebrate on the 28th or the first as your as your birthday. But yeah, there would those days just were cut out if it came October 15th, and that was just that was just really taking into account everything we'd missed for the previous 1500 years. So finishing up here. We doing okay. Uh, the day is based on the rotation of the Earth. I talked about the four-minute difference because the Earth is orbiting the Sun. So there's a star day, sidereal day, measured relative to the stars. There's the solar day, which is the one that we used. Time, all the time that we use, is based on unrelated astronomical motions. So if the if astronomers had not been the ones to develop the early calendar and we had just picked out certain things as days or said there were so many days in a year. Astronomical events might not line up, but you could have picked something a lot easier that there were always you know, so many days in a year or so many days in a month. You could have broken things down. It's because they were all on astronomical events that aren't related to each other. Because how long it takes the moon to orbit around the Earth doesn't have anything to do with how long it takes the Earth to orbit around the sun. And then I finished up talking about leap years, uh, which were used to make the adjustment and to keep the calendar from slowly shifting out of sync. So questions on calendar time. Otherwise, we can get started on, on uh, phases. We won't get to eclipses today, but at least we need a chance to get through uh, some of phases today. Um, the next thing we want to look at here, we're going to start talking about the next two sections are on the moon, not on the features of the moon at all, but on what we see of the moon in the sky. So we're still looking at kind of the things that we see in the sky. Now, what we see of the moon, right? if you go out and look at the moon, where are we right now? We are at a very, ooh, almost new moon, very, very thin crescent um, right now. So that's what we see. When you go out and look at the moon, it's one of the objects that you can actually see in the sky easily. Right? You can see the planets, but they're just dots of light. You can see stars, but they're just dots of light. Uh, but the moon is the one thing you can actually see with some kind of size to it, that and the sun. And we see that it changes. How much of it is illuminated changes over the course of time. Sometimes you'll see just a little bit of it illuminated. So at certain times, other times you'll see the moon fully illuminated, full moon. 
So what we have is that there are two things that are causing this, two competing things. First of all, half of the moon is always illuminated by the sun. No matter what the phase is, and that's what's kind of shown in the image here, the sun is way off over to the right here, and no matter where you look, half of the moon is illuminated. Put anything out in light, right? put a ball out in the light, half of it's going to be lit up and half of it's going to be dark. Right? If you have a flashlight shining on it, half of it's going to be illuminated, half is not. So half the moon is always illuminated by the sun, and half of the moon is always visible from Earth. Right? We can see the side facing us. If we have a ball holding a ball out there, I can see the side facing us. I can't see the other side. Same with the moon. The moon is out there in space. Half of it faces us, and half of it is pointing away. The combination of those two is what gives us the phases. Because if we look, do have one here? We can only see the part of the moon that is facing us. So right here, at third quarter phase, half of the moon would be illuminated and half would not be. We would see, when we looked at the moon, we would see a quarter phase. One, we would see one portion of it, half of it illuminated, and the other half would be dark. If we did this in full phase, right, we could still only see the side facing us, but that happens to be the side that's fully illuminated. So we would see a full moon. We would see the entire face of the moon being illuminated. Right now, we're very close to new moon. Half is still illuminated, but it's pointing away from us. So we can't see it, and we see essentially the dark portion of the moon. In between, you might see a crescent. If we divide that in half, we'd only see a thin sliver of the moon illuminated. So it's the combination of those two things that gives us the phases as it moves around. So right here, you'd see nothing, what we call new moon, because the illuminated portion is facing away from us. As you go this way, and the Earth, the Moon would orbit around this direction, you'd see a little bit of it. As you work from here, you'd see a little bit of the Moon illuminated, slowly getting more and more, until you see half of it illuminated. So this would be what we call the waxing crescent phase. And I'm going to show you them again on the, uh, show you again on some of the other slides. But uh, waxing crescent, waxing simply means it's getting bigger and bigger. So if you watch the Moon over the next few days, right through the rain. <laughs> If you could watch the moon over the next few days, you would see a very, very thin crescent visible in a couple of days. And if you watched it over two, three, four, you'd see it get thicker and thicker every day. You'd see a little more each night if you went back and looked at it. About a week from now, we'll be at first quarter. That means you'll go from almost nothing to half of the moon being illuminated in about seven days. And if you continue watching it, you go more than half. We'd get to the, still the waxing phase because we're seeing more illuminated, but now you're more than half. We call that the gibbous phase. So this would be waxing gibbous as you go from first quarter to full. More than half of it illuminated, but not quite fully illuminated. Then you'd have the full moon, and then you go through all of the phases back in, in reverse again. So you go through everything else in reverse. You go from full moon. Now you're going to see it getting less and less visible. That's what we call the waning phases. Waning just means if you look at it today and you look at it tomorrow, less of it was illuminated. And you look at it three days later, even less of it is going to be illuminated that we're going to see. And you'd go through the waning gibbous phase, you get back down to a quarter phase again, and then you go through a waning crescent and it would get thinner and thinner until it disappears into new moon and then the cycle starts over again. That's what takes 29 and a half days. So that is the cycle of the lunar phases, how long it takes to go from New moon to new moon, or full moon to full moon, or first quarter to first quarter. It doesn't matter. Any pair of phases will always take about a month 
to go from one to the other. Now when we look at the cycle here, with the exception of the 20th, for some reason the image didn't come through there, but this is what you would see over the course of the month. I pulled one up here from 2005, but the lunar phase cycle is 29 and a half days. So if you had a new moon on, in this case, this would have been May the 8th, on June the 6th, about 29 and a half days later, you would have had a new moon again. In the meantime, you would have gone through all of those partial phases. You would have started out seeing almost nothing, a thinner crescent growing each day, getting bigger and bigger until about a week later you got up to about a quarter phase. Then you get to the gibbous phase. Uh, getting about two weeks later you get to about a full moon somewhere in here. And then you start to see less and less of, less of it until it slowly disappears and you reach the new moon again. So that's what we call the synodic month or the cycle of phases. That's what we can actually see. Remember we had a solar day and a sidereal day. We also have a sidereal month. A sidereal month is how long it really takes the month, the moon, to orbit around the Earth. So the moon takes 27.3 days to get around the Earth once. If you were just standing out in space watching the Earth orbit around the moon, 27 days later, it would get back to the same position that it was in. However, in a month, the, moon, the Earth has moved a long ways around the sun, about one twelfth of the way. So the cycle of phases actually takes a couple of days longer. It's actually a couple of days. Instead of just that four minutes we got for the sun, it's actually almost two full, or a little over two full days for it to get back in, relative to the moon. I gave you the phases last time. I'm just going to name them here what they are. You can have the new moon. You'll have a crescent, quarter, gibbous, full, and then you go back to gibbous, quarter, crescent, and new. You have the waxing one, which are here where you're seeing more and more each day. You get up to full moon, then you have the waning phases where you'll see less and less each day. You can tell whether it's waxing or waning by in two ways. First of all, by what side is illuminated. If it's a waxing phase, it's going to be the right side illuminated. If it's getting bigger and bigger, it's always going to be this side getting bigger and bigger. So you're going to see the right side illuminated when it's waxing. When it's waning, it's always going to be the left side that's illuminated. So it's going to be less and less as it disappears off to that side. You can also tell a little bit by what time of day it's visible. So what phases of the moon are visible at each time of day can also tell you that. And I go back to this uh, image that I'd shown earlier, but they depend on the position of the sun and the moon. So looking at the examples here, a new moon is always in the same direction as the sun. That's why we can't see it, because the illuminated portion is pointing away from us. So it rises and sets with the sun. So a new moon would rise with the sun and set with the sun, and we're not going to see it. A crescent phase is always close to the sun. So crescent phases are right in here. Remember, the sun is way off in this direction. So when we're looking toward a crescent phase, we're always looking in the direction of the sun. General direction, not exactly towards the sun. And therefore, we're never going to see a crescent phase during the middle of the night. You're not going to wake up, around here at least, at 2 in the morning and look out and see a crescent phase of the moon. If you do, something's wrong. It's just not possible because it always has to be close to the sun. So you're not going to see a crescent phase over here at midnight. If you're standing here and looking out, you can see any of these phases, but you could never see a crescent phase because it has to be close to the sun in the sky. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, the sun is way below the horizon. That means a crescent moon is going to be way below the horizon. 
So some fa certain phases can only be seen at certain time of day, just like you're never going to see a full moon during the middle of the day. Right? If you look up at noon, you're never going to see a full moon. You might see other phases, you might see a quarter, you might be able to see crescent phases during the day, but you're not going to be able to see a full moon because it's opposite to the sun. And I think I tell you here, it's always opposite. So it's opposite to the sun. Sun's going down, moon's coming up, or sun's coming up and moon's going down, either way. It's always going to be opposite in the sky to the sun. So if you see the sun at, at a time of full moon, you'd see the sun setting, the moon would just be rising. Uh, what else? The quarter phase is just in between where you're seeing half of it. That's kind of a halfway around. And then the gibbous phase just means you're more than halfway around. So what time of day you could possibly see them when you're looking for the moon, the full moon or the new moon. I went through those. I talked about the crescents. But the waxing and waning phases also matter. If you're looking for, these are the waxing phases. You can see them in the afternoon and the evening when they'd be above the horizon that you see. So if you see a quarter moon and it's 6 or 7 o'clock at night, it's the first quarter. If it's 6 or 7 in the morning, then it's third quarter. So if you can't remember whether it's right side or left side, which is to be, it also depends on the time of day. Because you cannot see the first quarter moon. The first quarter moon here is best visible at about 6 p.m. So you can see it earlier in the late afternoon or early evening. But if you get to 6 a.m., it's not going to be visible, not unless you've got a transparent earth to look through. But if you're, seeing, if you're up at 6 in the morning and seeing a quarter phase of the moon, it would then be the third quarter. All right, the moon also has an interesting uh, rotation and revolution uh, pattern in that the rotation, how long it takes, the, the moon's day, how long it takes to spin on its axis, is exactly the same as the moon's year how long it takes to go around the Earth once. They're exactly the same. This is what we call a synchronous rotation, meaning that they're locked together. So it takes exactly the same amount of time to spin on its axis as it does to go around the Earth. That means that we can only see half the moon. Right, I already told you half is illuminated, but it doesn't matter whether it's illuminated or not. It's the same side of the Earth, moon always facing us. If you could illuminate, you got a monster spotlight you're going to put on the moon during new moon so you can see it. It's going to be the exact same thing that we see at full moon. That other side of the moon is completely invisible to us and in fact was unknown, unexplored until 1959. We had no, the moon could be the closest thing. We've studied it for what, thousands of years, probably millions of years. People have been looking at the moon. But until 1959, we had no clue what the far side looked like. And it's far side really more so than a dark side. There really isn't any dark side to, well, there is a dark side to the moon, but it changes. But it's really a far side. There is a far side that we know much less about. We know more now that we've explored it in more detail. But you know, even just, you know what, 60 years ago, we knew nothing about it. Just 60 years ago, we knew nothing about that other side, even though it's so close to us. Closest astronomical object, we knew nothing about the far side until 1959, when the first one there. So when we say dark side or far side, I tend to use the far side terminology because there is a side of the moon that is always pointing away from us and that we can never see from the Earth. A dark side of the moon really doesn't apply because no matter where you are on the moon, if you were living on the moon, you'd watch the sun rise and the sun set over the course of a month. 
it would be very long. The sun would rise. It would be up for two. It would take two weeks to traverse across the sky and then set and then be set for two weeks. It would be a very long time, but it would still you would have daylight and you'd have darkness no matter where you are on the moon. Okay, how many do I have tides? So let me just finish up. Probably get through tides here and we'll be perfect. And I'll do eclipses on Thursday. So tides are the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, today, they're caused by two things. They're caused by the moon and they're caused by the sun. The vast majority of them are caused by the moon. So most of the tides that you see, the, the moon causes most of the, of the tides. But they're a combination of the two. Because the gravitational force, what this is, is it's called a differential gravitational force. Remember we talked about the gravitational force that Newton gave us? It said that it depends on the distance between two objects. Well, generally, you can just say the distance between the center of the sun and the center of the Earth, because it does, the size of the Earth doesn't matter much compared to the distance. It does for tides, because the near side of the Earth is a little bit closer. That distance is smaller. So the, the sun and the moon pull a little bit harder on the side of the Earth facing them. And they pull a little less hard on the size of the Earth, the Earth that's not facing them. That's the top image here. These are the fourth arrows of gravity. So at this side of the Earth, say the moon is pulling on it a little harder. Here it's pulling on it somewhere in between. And here it's pulling on a little bit less. If you average that out to the center of the Earth and subtract the middle arrow, you get that on this side, things are being pulled pulled towards the moon. And this side, things are being pushed away from the moon. So that's what's causing our tides is, for now, just worry about the moon, that the moon is pulling things towards it on the near side of the Earth and pushing things away on the far side of the Earth. So that's why we get tides 12 hour, about 12 hours apart. The high tide will be here when we're in the same, when the Earth and the moon are all, uh, Earth, is, Earth is in the same direction as the moon right here when they're lined up, then we're going to get that side facing the, or facing the moon is going to get the high tide. 12 hours later, you'll get the same thing. And in between, you'd get a low tide. Now, why is it just the water that moves? Well, water flows a lot better than rock. Right? It's kind of hard to pull rock. It does, it does move a little bit. It might move by centimeters, but not enough that you'd notice it. Whereas the tides, if you've watched the tides come in or go out, they can come in by you know, a lot of feet. Right? You can have a big tide. You can put your stuff down on the beach and come back. you know. An hour later and find out that it's washed away or that you're now a lot further away from the water than when you first started. So the tides are caused by a combination of these two. It's caused by primarily the moon. The moon is accounts for about two-thirds of the tides that we see. And it is this force between being pulled a little bit more on one side of the Earth than, than on the other side. Now there's two types of tides. And since I'm just about out of time, I'm going to go over those. I'll go over those at the beginning next time and then go into the into the seasons. So I don't want to try to drag that out and go over for you. So if you have a copy of Solar Observations to leave me, I can take that. If not, if you want to submit it up on uh, D2L, that's perfectly fine. And otherwise, if you don't have one yet, see what you can get later this week. And I'll still give you credit for something through next week. Otherwise, have a good day. And I'll see you on Thursday.